Gaspards. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us together as family this evening. Thank you for giving us truth that sets us free. Thank you for this church, this building, Father, this place of peace and rest and refuge. We're so very grateful for all the grace that you've shown us over the years, including this evening. Father, we do pray for those that are in the congregation that are disoriented at this point, maligned even to your plan. Father, we just pray that they be humbled, be brought back to the fold uh, before too much discipline is applied to their lives. We pray also for those still lost in this world, Father, that they be humbled as well in a much more important way before it's too late, receive saving faith. Father, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this such a wonderful time of rejoicing. We do just pray and ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Okay, part 60. Uh, we had a week of uh, discipline in terms of messages. And regarding that topic, I think this verse captures the essence of it. Up here on the board, Hebrews 12, 10, part B. God disciplines us for our good. For our good, that we may share his holiness. That's it. It's for our good, so that we might share the blessing of his holiness, of being set aside for his good purposes, of being made righteous even experientially, not just positionally, but experientially in time, to be set free from the burden of our own sins, of our own sin natures, to be set free from all of that. That sounds great to me. How about you? Yeah, that's what discipline does. It takes us away from that old life with all the trappings and all the burdens and all the misery and all the anxiety and all the yada yada, all that stuff. It takes us away from it. It wakes us up, in other words, before we get too deep. And we ought to be very, very grateful to our Father in Heaven who loves us enough to discipline us. So while we might complain about pain, the truth is, according to Holy Scripture, which is what matters, pain is a primitive instrumental aspect of discipline, and it's intrinsically good. Even the pain, it doesn't feel good, but it's intrinsically good for us, because that's what wakes us up. The Spirit on Sunday uh, carried this analogy, uh, this splinter analogy throughout the message up here on the board regarding unconfessed sin and unrepentance. Unconfessed, unrepented sin is like a splinter. Until it is removed, it causes pain. While you may not even see the splinter, you know it is there because the pain tells you that it is. Again, unconfessed sin and unrepentance. Unconfessed and unrepented sin is like a splinter. Until it is removed, it causes pain. While you may not even see the splinter. It may be so deep at this point, you don't see it anymore. But you feel the pain. And so that's God saying, something's wrong, my child. Something's wrong. There's a reason. You ready? There's a reason why you're walking with a limp. <laughs> because something is wrong. You picked up a little splinter, a shard, something when you veered off the proper path. By the grace of God, if you are a believer, the pain and suffering from godly discipline simply cannot be ignored. I was thinking about that. I don't know of any part of Holy Scripture that states that God will ever remove the pain and suffering of unconfessed, unrepented sin for a believer. 
I don't know of any scripture that says that God will definitely do that thing. He just says, all right, enough's enough. You know, I'm just going to, you're obviously not going to. No. I don't know of any scripture that says that, that he will remove pain and suffering from godly discipline for a believer. The only thing I do see is that he may choose to remove an unrepentant uh, believer from planet Earth. (laughs) Right? If it goes far enough, we call this the sin unto death. He might do that, but as far as us living here on earth in unrepentant sin, I don't see any scripture that says that it's going to magically disappear. And just as a you know, theological reminder, we're going to spend the next few minutes just digging in a little bit uh, into theology proper. Uh, the sin of, unto death is willful, continuous unrepentant sin that's the basic definition of what the sin unto death is it's it's abiding into this or abiding willfully continuously in unrepentant sin until god says that's it i'm taking you out go to first john 5 16 first john 5 16 if you willfully continuously live in unrepentant sin Eventually, God might take you out. 1 John 5.16 And don't say, oh, that's great, because I'd like to go home to be with the Lord first anyways. Right? Because I, I know some of you and you're sick. Right? Who's to say he's not going to drag it out for a little while? Who's to say that the pain is not going to be excruciating for years before he does that thing? So don't be an idiot. 1 John 5.16 <laughs> If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. That's the sin unto death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And so while we don't know the limits of God's patience with his children, we do know that he will remove some of us if we remain unrepentant. Assuming the sin is severe enough in his eyes, but this we don't even know specifically. If you ask me, hey pastor, what, you know, what is the sin unto the, what's the sin, you know, what's that sin? I don't know. I, if, I was a, if I was to guess, I'd say it's probably different for everyone. It's just a matter of arrogance, right? Um, I don't know. Again, this addresses my previous point that, you know, I don't know of any part of Holy Scripture that states that God will ever remove the pain and suffering of unconfessed, unrepented sin for a believer. This means that all other indications in the Bible that speak to his discipline as a function of his love for us prevail always. You know, God is not mocked. Uh, You reap what you sow. You will be disciplined because he loves you. It's going to involve pain. It's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve all that stuff. That stuff is certainly in Holy Scripture. I don't see a relief valve for believers other than death. The other situation, again, we're just thinking theologically now. The other situation where unrepentance is apparently no longer a direct source of pain is for unbelievers whose hearts have been hardened to the point where God simply hands them over completely to their own depravity. Now, you might have a good argument there and say, well, at that point, he's probably just not going to discipline them anymore. I don't know all the answers to that, but I do know what Holy Scripture says about that poor soul. Go to Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. So we're just doing a little theology here. The relief valve, as far as I can see, for unrepentant sin in a believer's life is the sin unto death. 
But arguably for unbelievers, if it gets to a certain point, um, he might just hand you over to your own lust and say, hey, listen, you've got the rest of your life and that's it because you're going to spend eternity in hell. So enjoy your time while you're here, I suppose. I don't know. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, first of three, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up, number two, to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, number three, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they, knew, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Three times in this one passage, the Bible clearly states that God gave them up, which can be viewed as a single event, by the way. There's no reason to think that that event is necessarily uh, separate on a per-person basis. Um, God gave them up in the sense that at some point, the holy loving God of the universe essentially said, enough's enough. Have it your way. You want to try it without me? Here you go. And he just hands them over. That, we had that discussion in the leadership meeting on Sunday. That scares me to death. I mean, viscerally like, whoa, wait a minute. Because you know, you, everyone in here has loved ones that you're kind of like, geez, I don't know, I, they're probably not saved, but there's always hope, right? You know, he's always like, oh, there's always hope because they're still alive, they can still be saved. What happens when the holy God of the universe, the only one that's able to save such a person, says, I'm done with you? That's it. There's, our hope is dead at that point. For that person, we don't know when it happens, but you get the what I'm getting at, like, that happens. Where the only one able to save a soul says, I'm done. Have it your way. That's awful. In my soul, I don't even know where to put that. Because there's no longer that hope. And everybody, the way sometimes I go to bed at night saying, there's, there's hope. You know, maybe my relative that I care about is, Maybe on, in their last, you know, their last day on earth, they finally, you know, receive Christ. They finally believe. They repent. They believe. If God already said, I gave you up, my hope is dead. That 
thing, that reality is just awful. It's awful, but it happens according to Holy Scripture. He says, enough's enough. Have it your way. That did remind me of the, uh, the passage we've read recently in Ro- or, excuse me, Proverbs 1 up here on the board, uh, 29 to 31. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my proof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way, basically, their, own, their way, and have their fill of their own devices. You want it your way? See what comes of it. Up here on the board, the, the Living uh, Bible translation. For you closed your eyes to the facts and did not choose to reverence and trust the Lord, and you turned your back on me, spurning my advice. That is why you must eat the bitter fruit of having your own way and experience the full terrors of the pathway you have chosen. Just remind me of it. God saying, you know what, enough's enough. You want it your way? I tried. And you said, no. One last terrifying passage. And terrifying is the right word. One last terrifying passage that we simply cannot overlook is the one that describes a person whom God has personally evangelized completely and still chooses to walk away from his offer of salvation. Go to Hebrews 6, 4. Hebrews 6, verse 4. These are horrible, horrible things to think about. But the thing we have to remember is what we just read in Romans 1, is that they were there without excuse. God's a God of justice and integrity and righteousness. He's never going to sentence someone to hell for all of eternity that didn't have a shot at salvation. Hebrews 6.4 For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. This is a reference to apostasy. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up in contempt. It's impossible. In other words, Hebrews 6, 4-6 describes apostasy, which is defined as a person who's actually received the full revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, been wholly convicted by it, and still decides to stand against it. Essentially, that's saying, I heard you, no thank you. There's nothing left. In other words, God the Holy Spirit made it abundantly clear to this person, and they said no. It's a strange scene to imagine in a person's soul. I mean, I'm going to be honest. It actually, I actually get pretty indignant about it. I get pretty angry about it when I think about it, so I don't think about it too much. Because I, 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 it might spill over into a, a person who's going to be in hell anyways. And I don't like that. But it's strange seeing to imagine in a person's soul because in that moment when they have fully received knowledge and conviction of the gospel, they essentially stand right up to God, the Holy Spirit, and say, I hear you but I reject your offer of salvation. I hear you. Yep, and I know it's you, God, but I reject it. Um, Does that not sound like preposterous? To us, it's unbelievable. It's untenable, right? We're like, wait a minute. Whoa, wait a minute. You're going to stand up. It's not like you're like, la, la, oh, is that God? I don't know. No, No, you know it's God in that moment. And you basically say, no, thank you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not having what you're, what you're offering as a free gift. 
It's preposterous, but it happens all the time. All the time. And back to that other point, the saddest thing of all is that any hope they had of ever being saved is in that moment when God so decides, and we don't know when this is for someone, it's lost. That person is handed over to eternal damnation without any possibility of being saved, even while they're still here on earth. So any hope is gone. It happens. God says, that's enough. All right, you've heard everything. You and I saw eye to eye on this thing, right? I convicted you personally. My spirit came and convicted you personally. And you had the audacity to say to your creator, the one who's still willing to save you, nope. No. Well, that anger quickly turns into, then you get what you deserve. Right? Yeah. That's how you can sleep at night. You have to understand that anybody that ends up in hell wanted to be there. Maybe not hell specifically, but you get the point. They didn't want God. God offered himself. Made it the whole thing possible. Made it understandable, clearly. Because he's a just and righteous God. And they said no. So anybody that spends their eternity in, in hell chose to be there. That's how I sleep at night. It's still, it's still awful to think about. But at least I know we have a just, right, righteous God that functions with integrity. Even though it makes me extremely sad. Here's another passage on this topic a little later in the same book. Go to Hebrews 10, 26. Hebrews 10, 26. Again, this is just theology proper. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. I suppose this outrage is a smidgen of what you know we sometimes feel whenever we think of someone blatantly saying no to God the Holy Spirit in full revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's righteously indignant. Maybe that indignation that we feel is like, yeah, what the, what are you doing? This is God. And you're basically, you're that arrogant that you stand up to the holy, sovereign God of the universe, the one that created you? You have the audacity to stand up to him? I do. Well, then, you deserve hell. It's that simple. It sounds awful. I hate even saying that out loud, but a part of me, the indignant part, has no problem. Actually, it's like, yeah! Absolutely! You arrogant SOB! So it is infinitely audacious to do this thing, and yet every person who's ever ended up in hell has said no to the Holy Spirit's offer. Stepping back now, so that's the other way uh, where unrepentant sin may no longer be cause for pain. God just hands you over. Now that's not to say that God may still choose to punish, say, a murderer. That's not to say that either. That's why I didn't make it caught blanc, like, you know, every unbeliever that's 
handed over to their own devices is no longer punished ever. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for a particular situation, he might relieve some of it and say, hey, I'll hand you over. See how that works out for you. Again, the instigating point was, I don't know of any part of Holy Scripture that states that God will ever remove the pain and suffering of unconfessed, unrepentant, or unrepented sin for a believer. So the overarching principle is that if you are a believer and you're still alive, which I think is a fair assumption if you're actually listening to this message, although it's hard to tell sometimes. No kidding. <laughs> if you're still alive, then you will be subjected to pain and suffering for as long as you persist in unrepentant sin. Let that marinate for a little while. Seriously. You will be subject to pain and suffering for as long as you persist in unrepentant sin. Why? Because God loves you enough to discipline you for your own good. This is where we began this evening, remember, up here on the board. Hebrews 12, 10, part B. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. The practical principle up here on the board, unconfessed sin and unrepentance. Unconfessed, unrepented sin is like a splinter. Until it is removed, it causes pain. While you may not even see the splinter, you know it is there because the pain tells you that it is. And so in that sense, pain is a grace gift from a God, a holy, our holy God that loves us. I was thinking about, you know, even pain like, you know how it is, right? I was thinking about pain from discipline as throbbing pain. You know, like when you have a toothache or a burn, you know, or a cut or something, you know, it throbs, right? But if it was like, if it was like flattened out, you might be able to deal with it. You just kind of like, you know, it's just flat. But when it throbs, do you know what I'm saying? It gets your attention. Every time it goes, woo, you're like, woo, right? And so I was thinking about that because some of you are like, well, I've been living in unrepentant sin and I'm not suffering at all. Wait for it. Wait for it. Woo, right? And your head almost blows off. I think God does that too on purpose. I call it letting the, letting the line out, you know, like in fisherman's terms. He just lets the line out for a little bit. And he goes. Urgh. But if you, if, you ch if you chase away from God for any period, the longer you chase away, the, the, the more it takes to come back in. <laughs> There's more line to reel in. So it's kind of dumb. But anyways, I was thinking about that throbbing pain in the sense that while we might be able to, you know, numb the pain or ignore it for a time, you know, like tip a few back, you know, light a few up. I don't know, whatever you people do. I don't want to go any further. Right? But you can numb it for a while. You can, you have all these little things that you do to try to like, you know, pretend it's not there, pretend it doesn't exist, and then it throbs again, and it's right in your face, and it's worse, because now it's becoming infected, and the longer you let it go, the worse it gets, and the harder the throbbing is, and God's like, I'm trying to stop this, I'm trying to help you out, and that's a very good thing. So this cyclical throbbing nature of pain, you know, sometimes that's what does the trick. Whatever the case may be up here on the board, perspective on discipline, a humble person accepts pain for what it is, a grace gift from God. Pain from discipline is a cause for gratitude, not spite. Here's our final conclusion up here on the board, perspective on discipline. One of the greatest things about pain is that it tells us something is wrong. Something's wrong. The nervous system, whether in the physical sense or the figurative sense, for example, emotional pain, is one of the greatest gifts we've ever been given. If you couldn't feel pain, you'd destroy yourselves. 
you'd never, you probably would never repent. You'd be like, whatever. Why is this point in the board true? Because living in sin is unhealthy for us in every way, spiritually, emotionally, and as the Bible says, even physically. Even physically. Living in sin is unhealthy for us in every way, every dimension, spiritually, emotionally, even physically. The Bible teaches us all about or about all of these maladies existing in our lives when we persist in sin. Remember what King David said? Go to Psalm 32, verse 1. King David, Psalm 32, verse 1. Who sinned awfully and then, you know, kept silent. Refused to confess it. Refused to repent for a while. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, David speaking, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. That sounds pretty tough, doesn't it? My bones wasted away. He was physically beat because he was unrepentant. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Salah. And then he turns the corner. He repents, right? I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Salah. What did we learn from studying this passage in the past that applies to our studies now even on discipline? Up here on the board. This was the aha moment on Sunday, right? The end goal of godly discipline is repentance. All the pain, all the suffering, all the... God just wants you to turn back to Him. He wants you to turn your... That's all repentance is, right? You just change your mind. You turn... I like to think about it as turning your back. You're looking at sin, you're engaged with sin, you're frolicking with sin, and God's saying, I want you to turn your back on that thing, whatever it is in your life, I want you to turn away from it. That's what repentance is. And I want you to cling to me. I want you to drop that, whatever it is, and turn to me. You'll be blessed. That's the end goal of discipline, because sometimes we're holding on to that thing like this, and he's plucking our fingers, and our fingernails are ripping off, and we're like, no, you know. That kind of a thing. We fight them. And for that, we suffer. So, whenever you contemplate godly discipline, whether in your home or even in a church setting, we've had to discipline people here in the past. It was for the sake of repentance. Think about the point on the board, regardless of where you get discipline from. Just remember this point wherever you see it being applied, even in someone else's life, think of this point on the board. It's to drive them to repentance. That is the goal of godly discipline. It's a very simple concept that, frankly, seems to be lost on a lot of people, strangely enough. I sometimes get the sense that people think unhealthily about discipline that causes something like severe pain. They don't even think right about it. They, I think a lot of people misrepresent God's purpose for discipline. It isn't just to cause pain as a form of punishment, you know, like some angry, ungodly father might do when he abuses his children. Rather, the pain he causes is the only remedy to waking us up to that splinter, right? That's, that's what it's there for. That's what the pain is there for, to say, hey, something's wrong. You've got a big old splinter. And it's fracturing our relationship even, experientially. We've got to pull it out. 
Sometimes that pain is the only remedy to waking us up. And so the splinter that is sin needs to be removed. Godly discipline isn't about the punishment and the pain. That's just the vehicle that God uses. And thank God he gave us the faculties to feel pain. Unlike, remember like SIP, uh, that physical ailment where a person can't feel pain as an analog. Thank God he gave us the faculties to, to feel pain because it's about the end goal, repentance. Always remember that. The end goal of discipline is repentance. It's not the punishment. It's not the pain. It's not like, you stepped out of line, whack! You know, a religious person thinks that way. Oh my goodness, I better be good because I'm going to get hurt. Not, oh my goodness, I better be good, or I better shape up my act so I can turn back to God. It's, oh my goodness, I better not stay doing this because it's going to hurt when he hits me. You see the difference? Completely different motivations. One's like just avoidance of pain. The other one is actually adoration and love and affection for the Redeemer, for the Lord, for the Savior. Totally different mindsets. And repentance is the latter. Always remember that. I know people right now who are listening to my voice who, to this day, refuse to repent from living in sin. Listen to my voice right now. Refuse to repent from living in sin. And just as a side note, as a, you know, to, to, to give a balance statement here. Do not mistake living in sin with living with temptation. In other words, just because a certain temptation persists in your life doesn't mean there's something necessarily wrong with you or that God is going to discipline you for being tempted. Don't confuse the two. In other words, you could get almost guilty about, ah, oh, there's that temptation again. I'm sorry, Lord. You know, it's like, no. The key is in not giving in to said temptation to where it becomes sin. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we are going to be disciplined for being tempted. That would mean Christ would have to have been disciplined because he was tempted in every way. So we're not disciplined for being tempted. And so that, in some ways, should, you know, just make sure you, you draw that line in the sand. Okay? Just don't become confused or stop feeling guilty because you have weaknesses. So that's just a little side note. Back to the point. Again, I know people right now who are listening to my voice who refuse to repent from living in sin. Remember that the Lord had John, or what the Lord had John write to the church at Laodicea up here on the board, Revelation 3, 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Repent. That's the end goal. Repent. I mean, for some of you, even in some ways, this message is a form of discipline because he's talking directly to you. When I just said, I know people that refuse. He was talking to you and you know it. And you don't like it. And it's caused a little stir in your soul, right? <laughs> and so what's the Spirit say? Repent. The whole end goal of discipline is to repent. That's the practical side of discipline. Again, why discipline? Up here on the board. The end goal of godly discipline is repentance. There's wonderful fruit, frankly, to be had once we repent. Go to Hebrews 12, 11. Hebrews 12, verse 11. It doesn't even come, it's not like it comes with no fruit or no blessings even. It comes with incredible fruit. I, I taught a whole series on this topic. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the beauty of repentance. You can turn to what's right again. Instead of being uh, living in what's wrong, instead of missing the mark, living in sin as a way of life even, turn back and enjoy the peaceful fruit of being right, being righteous. He, Hebrews 12, 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be what? Healed. Isn't that beautiful? Make straight paths for your feet. Repent from the crookedness of your daily walk. Make your path straight. If you've got habits, listen, very practical. If you've got bad habits, you ready? Break them. Don't, don't buy that garbage lie. Well, let, well, I need to go to some social program. No, you don't. Stop. Where's my, oh, man, remember that video? Bob Newhart, do you remember that? Did I share that with you guys? Didn't I do that one time? Bob Newhart, when he was, like, giving, uh, you know, uh, counseling for five bucks. And the lady's like, I'm doing it. He goes, stop it. Remember that? It was the best. Bob Newhart, look it up on YouTube if you've got internet. Look at it. Stop it. That's his advice. That's, that's the advice from the Spirit. Just stop it. <laughs> what are you going to do? There's no, there's no like easing in and out of this stuff. Just stop. If you've got bad habits in your life, guess what? You ready? Stop it. I mean it. Like if you get up every morning and you have this bad habit that you do, find something else to do. If before you go to bed every night, you have this bad habit that you do, or at lunchtime, or, you know, you, you call your friend and you have a bad habit, or you, I don't know what you wackos do, right? Whatever it is you do that's messed up, that's habitual, you know, because habit has that way of, like, guiding our feet, right? You look down, the path is worn, and we tend to follow the path of least resistance. So we, there's a crooked path because we've been following for years. Just cut straight through. Say, I'm not going to follow that worn-out path anymore because that's dysfunction junction. And although it may seem easier at the time because that's my habit and I'm lazy and I really kind of like the crooked path, my sin nature does, to heck with all that. Just stop, honestly. You might, be su- you might be surprised. I mean, I've been surprised so many times in my life. I'm like, that was that easy? After all this time, all I had to do was just say, stop. It was that easy? Yep. And God's like, see? Oh, food for thought. Up here on the board. Putting repentance into perspective. Repentance is the pathway to healing. We just read that. And by the way, repentance means to have a change of mind. I like to think about just turn right away from whatever it is. And oh, by the way, deliverance is but a change of perspective away. In other words, a change of mind. You want to be delivered? Repent. You see it? Whoop. Change of perspective. I was looking at my sin and I was all engrossed in that. I turned around, now I'm looking at the Lord. Ta-da! I was in bondage, now I'm delivered. Ta-da! It's not rocket science. Just do it. Honestly. Literally, just do it. Don't ask questions. Don't look for help. Don't look for a patch. Right? That's my smoker analogy, you know? Nobody? Just quit. Just straight up quit. You don't need a patch. You don't need a, you don't need a crutch. Just literally turn and say, I'm done with you. You make my life terrible. I'm, ne- I'm not happy. I'm miserable when I look at you, Mr. Sin or Miss Sin, whatever the sin is. This week's blog up here on the board is titled, Righteousness Implies Being Right. Now there's a thought. The peaceful fruit of what? Righteousness. So if you want that peace, peaceful fruit of righteousness, guess what? You got to be right. (laughs) This is not right. This is no. This is wrong. Right? This is right. (laughs) This is anxiety and pain. This is peace. I know. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. Right? You, you obviously, we obviously need a PhD 
to figure that out. Because why otherwise wouldn't we just say, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't I do that for the rest of my life? <laughs> We're unbelievable. Make sure you read it. Righteousness implies being right. The value of actually being right instead of simply proclaiming righteousness makes all the difference. I know a lot of religious people. You do too, I'm sure. And they proclaim righteousness, but they're miserable. The reason is, is because they're not actually right. They just stake a claim to righteousness. They say, see, I wear my Sunday best. I have my polished Bible. I can say these verses. I say my prayers, and I rub these necklaces, and I do this kind of weird stuff. Whatever the religion is, I do all these little things. I play this little game, but I'm not actually right because I'm still staring at a life of sin. I just play this game publicly so people won't bother me about my life of sin, which is why I will never, ever, ever, ever go back to that ball guy's church again or anyone like him. Right? Have it become your enemy? Yeah. The people don't want the truth. People don't actually want to be right. They just want to proclaim righteousness, and then they expect magic to happen. It doesn't work like that. I think what the Spirit's saying here is that we need to spend real time on being honest about what we know and what we think we know or assume to be true in an unchallenged way. That's what he's saying up here on the board. Only a fool refuses to challenge their own beliefs. Let that marinate for a little while. You say you believe something? Challenge your belief. How do you do that? You ready? There it is. That's why a lot of people, so-called Christians, do not want to read this book. Because everything they want to believe about their own self-righteousness, their own righteousness, would be blown up in an instant if they actually opened up their Bible. Which is why they prefer religions that say, don't open your Bible. Matter of fact, we're going to put it in Latin. We're going to put it in a whole other language. So you, you can't read what we're reading. And they say, perfect. I didn't want to read that thing anyways. Just tell me what I need to do so I can keep doing this and put up a facade, play this little game, have my little avatar, my little religious avatar. Only That's a fool's game. There's no peace in that, says Holy Scripture. Only a fool refuses to challenge their own beliefs. I suppose the question is whether or not, or whether you're more afraid, listen, the question is whether you're more afraid of being wrong or more afraid of God. That's the question. Are you more afraid of being wrong or are you more afraid of God? Which one has the greater influence in your life? Fear of being wrong? In other words, your own self-righteousness being smashed? Or fear of God? We have two passages worth revisiting here, both of which are in this week's blog, by the way. Go to Proverbs 1.7. Proverbs 1, verse 7. Proverbs 1, verse 7. Yeah, I know. Righteousness implies being right. Imagine that. You want the peaceful fruit of it? You've got to be right. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools. Fools. Despise wisdom 
and instruction, fools. How about Proverbs 9, verse 10? Proverbs 9, verse 10. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Up here on the board, again, only a fool refuses to challenge their own beliefs. At the end of the day, it all comes down to your attitude towards the Word of God. And I guess I'll end. Yeah, I'll end with this next up here on the board. This is the big question. It's always the question. It's always behind whether or not we're delivered or not. The question is, do you want the truth or not? Do you? Do you want the truth? One more, Todd. Then do this. Read your Bible with intent and humility. Amen? All right, let's, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this time to relax, study your word, hear the truth, Father, the unadulterated truth, even though sometimes it stings, Father, we know that it leads us to repentance, which leads us to healing, Father, so that we might enjoy the peaceful fruit of being right. Thank you. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, to our families, our homes, and then your will be done out to a world that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.